You're listening to Good Hustle, a podcast about bad teams. I'm Andrew Mackey. It's the top of the ninth. Carl Mays is on the mound for Boston with a 2-1 lead. The right-hander from Liberty, Kentucky hasn't given up a hit since the fourth inning. He's got the top of the order coming up for the National League champion Chicago Cubs. First up is Max Flack. He pops out to the third baseman, Raleigh Zider. Charlie Holliker is next up. He hits a fly ball to left field that's snagged by Boston Red Sox left fielder Babe Ruth. Now with two outs, it's all down to Cubs outfielder Les Mann. Mays has the count at one ball and two strikes. He delivers. Mann swings and hits a grounder to the second baseman. He handles it, tosses it over to first, and that's the final out. The Boston Red Sox have just won the 1918 World Series in front of 15,238 fans at Fenway Park in Boston. The next season, the world champions of baseball would stumble to a 66-71 and record, finishing 6th place in the American League. New ownership took control of the club, and on January 20th, 1920, Red Sox owner Harry Frazee made the decision to sell the most famous player in the game, outfielder and pitcher Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $125,000 in cash and $300,000 in loans. It would take 24,881 days, but Boston was once again just one strike away from winning the World Series. This is episode 11 of Good Hustle, the 1986 Boston Red Sox. Chapter 1. Oh Boston, You're My Home. 24,881 days, or more simply put, 68 years, one month, and 14 days. The 1986 Boston Red Sox were within one strike of winning the World Series, something that the franchise had failed to do in all that time. A begrudgingly long time for a city that cares so deeply for a sport. Boston had made the 1946 World Series, and they lost in seven games. The Red Sox returned to the 1967 World Series and lost in seven games. They had made the World Series in 1975, and they lost in seven games. So here they are, once again like on that afternoon in 1918. One strike, one out away from ending a lifetime of misery. To make sure I understand everything for this episode, I wanted to dig into the mindset of a Red Sox fan. So I chatted with my very vocal, Liverpool-supporting, Cape Cod-born and bred, Red Sox fan friend, Russell. Russell is the fourth, and he roots for the Boston Red Sox. His father, Russell III, roots for the Boston Red Sox. Grandpa, you guessed it, Russell II, roots for the Boston Red Sox. Now, Russell's wife, Mo, cheers for the Detroit Tigers, so I gave him points for that. They just had a son, Russell V. He's being groomed by mom to be a Tigers fan, but Russell has hope telling me, quote, he won't want to cheer for a loser, unquote. I wanted to speak with him about the times before 2004, the majority of the fanhood of his father and grandfather. I wanted to learn more about what that generational gap felt like when rooting for the Red Sox meant you were going to be cheering for a loser. The season we're covering is 1986, and it was a sore spot. So was 1975. For the longest time, those Red Sox teams, the ones who came so close but couldn't win the championship, the teams that couldn't end the curse of the Bambino, 
the thing that everybody thought had happened when Frazee sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. Those were all the teams that Boston had. Those teams became part of the doctrine of being a Red Sox fan. Their stories were passed down from parent to child, from generation to generation. To suffer was to understand what it meant to be a Red Sox fan during that time. When Russell was born, the 1986 World Series hadn't happened yet. To give you an idea of how bad it was to be a Boston Red Sox fan, I want to give you an example of something Russell's grandfather said. That to raise Russell as a Boston Red Sox fan at this time would be a sin. To have him cheer for the team would be a, quote, waste of his life, unquote. The 21st century has been much kinder to the Red Sox, but, but back in 1986, this was the history. In this first chapter, I'm going to talk a little bit about the regular season, but then in chapters 2 and 3, I want to focus on the incredible postseason that this 1986 team had. The emotions must have just been oh, so hard to control. The season got off to a really good start. In fact, the whole first month of April was pretty good. On opening day at Tiger Stadium in Detroit, Boston Red Sox player Dwight Evans achieved a major league first. Hall of Famer Jack Morris was on the mound for the Tigers that afternoon. And on the very first pitch of the Major League Baseball season, Evans hit a home run. That's, you can't do any better than that to start off the year. On April 29th, 1986, Boston ace pitcher Roger Clemens accomplished what no strikeout pitcher had done before. And that's the entire history of the game. No one had done this. But Roger Clemens struck out 20 batters in a nine-inning game. He fanned 18 Seattle players going into the ninth inning. He then would strike out Spike Owen and Phil Bradley. Phil Bradley, by the way, who struck out for his fourth time that game, would break the record. The previous record was 19. Nolan Ryan had gotten to 19. Tom Seaver had gotten to 19. But no one else had gotten to 20. Roger Clemens got to 20. To give you an idea of the amount of control Clemens had during this game, he also didn't walk a single batter. He only allowed three hits the entire game. And the Boston Red Sox won 3-1. to one. one of the three hits, though, was a home run, which broke up the shutout. But still, that's incredibly impressive. He also struck out eight people in a row. At the time that this happens, Clemens is only 23. It's just his 20th career victory. He was in his third season with Boston. Eventually, the 20-strikeout mark would be matched by Chicago Cubs pitcher Kerry Wood. Clemens himself would have another 20-strikeout no-walk performance 10 years later for Boston this time against the Detroit Tigers. It was Clemens' 192nd and last win as a Red Sox starter. But in April 1986, he's just at the very beginning of his career. 24 years of dominance of Major League Baseball hitters. And he is the ace of the Boston Red Sox pitching rotation. On May 17th, the Red Sox would hold an old-timers game at Fenway Park before a scheduled game against the Texas Rangers. It was to commemorate the 40th anniversary of that 1946 Red Sox team. They welcomed back 19 alumni, including Hall of Famer Ted Williams. From this day on, the Red Sox would lead the American League East. Other teams would go on runs and get close, including the New York Yankees and the Toronto Blue Jays. Panic began as many Red Sox fans feared the team would choke away the lead. But finally, on September 29, 1986, they clinched the division. The Red Sox were going to the American League Championship Series. They would take on the California Angels. And so to give you a better idea of what everyone was expecting, here is an article from LA Times reporter Ross Newen giving you the scene as it happened. It goes, The sound of popping champagne corks triggered the sigh of relief that swept over New England Sunday. 
From Boston to Bangor, Maine, the concern that had accompanied the Boston Red Sox pursuit of the American League East title evaporated as the Red Sox finally exercised the ghosts of season past. Seven times in the previous 14 years, they had held a lead after the All-Star break, but had won only once in 1975. They led by seven and a half games in August of 1974 and lost. They led by 10 games in August of 1978 and lost in a division playoff with the New York Yankees. They had led the 1986 race since May 15th, but the question of fortitude hung like an albatross until Sunday when they officially clinched the division crown, eliminating their last challenger, the defending AL East champion Toronto Blue Jays 12-3. The Red Sox now have seven games remaining until they open the AL playoff against the Angels here on October 7th, said Oil Can Boyd, Boston's winning pitcher Sunday, quote, Look out, California. We'll be ready. I don't think they have the ball club to beat us now, unquote. John McNamara, who managed the Angels in 1983 and 84 and spurned their delayed offer to return in favor of the position here, stood behind his desk in a jubilant clubhouse. The champagne that dripped from his face seemed to hide the strain of a long summer. Everyone and his brother said we were going to cave, choke, and every other word you would want to use. But we didn't do it, McNamara said. Toronto won those nine straight near the end of August, and we turned around and won 11 in a row. That's the way it was all year. No one here ever quit, he finished. He was asked to compare the feeling to 1979 when he managed Cincinnati to the National League East title. This is much more satisfying because we were picked fifth or sixth by just about everyone, and we had more obstacles to overcome, he said. We had to go through an entire summer beating people down. Critics, baseball people, baseball managers, the ghost of our reputation. It's a very satisfying, very gratifying, very good feeling to emerge from all of that as champions. The reputation, right fielder Dwight Evans said, wasn't really fair, but now it's buried. Only Evans and Jim Rice remain from the 1975 team that reached the World Series. And they were here, of course, when the Albatross reappeared in 1978. The Yankees rallied from a 14-and-a-half game August deficit. The Red Sox became the Boston Stranglers. We didn't choke, Evans said, his volume rising. We had 99 wins. We won 11 of 12 to get to the playoff. No one talks about the Yankees playing 720 baseball down the stretch. 78 is over with done with. It was then. It definitely is now. Maybe we did want to prove something. All I know is I feel totally relaxed. I feel like a weight has been lifted from my shoulders, he finished. An entire region probably shared that feeling, but only proper puritanism was on display at Fenway Park, where the Red Sox have won 14 of their last 15 games. The crowd of 32,929 left the Story Stadium standing, the grass intact. Maybe it was the early show of strength during which a dozen mounted police circled the warning track in the seventh inning. Maybe it was the fact that police ringed the track by the time it ended. The zealots were on their feet cheering, clapping, chanting, we're number one, but only a few braved the nightsticks. Appreciative, perhaps, of this calm response, the Red Sox showered in champagne and returned to the field for a curtain call. Roger Clemens did it by riding double with one of the mounted police, a regal parade for the 24-game winner. Maybe, too, it was the fact that the drama went out of the clinching early. Seven Toronto pitchers yielded 13 hits and nine walks. The Blue Jays made three errors and twice permitted Boston runners to advance by failing to cover the proper base. Marty Barrett, Boston's unsung second baseman, drove in four runs with three singles and a pair of walks. 
Wade Boggs singled, walked twice, and became the first player in Boston history to collect 200 hits in four seasons and 200 hits and 100 walks in the same season. No major leaguer had done that since Stan Musial in 1953. A second-inning single by Don Baylor allowed him to become the fourth Boston player with 90 or more RBIs, an emphatic and continuing response to George Steinbrenner's June prediction that his bat would be dead by August. Said Baylor of his ex-employer, If you start believing what George says, you're going to wind up in trouble. Among the Red Sox, no one knows the meaning of trouble better than Oil Can Boyd. But on a crisp, clear, and memorable day, Boyd continued to bury his own ghost, scattering eight hits and retiring the last 11 Blue Jays in order to improve his record to 16-10. Boyd is a modest 5-4 since his midseason suspension. But he has won four of the last five decisions and pitched three straight complete game victories at Fenway. This was the biggest a personal panacea, perhaps, and Boyd prepared for it by spending the night in a midtown hotel. I had a dream with myself, a talk with myself, he said. I tried to block everything else out and think about what I had to do. I mean, I wasn't as flamboyant today because it was all locked inside. There is much about Oil Can Boy that the Red Sox are still trying to unlock, but he has seemed to come back now from those chronicle events of midseason. It was a nightmare, but you can't keep a good man down, he said. The Red Sox need the slick oil can of Sunday. A lingering knee injury may prevent Tom Seaver from pitching in the playoffs. Boston may go with only three starters, Boyd, Clemens, and Bruce Hurst, who are combined 18-2 since August 15th. In Boyd's words... Look out, California. And that ends the article. If you're curious about what was going on with Boyd, there's a couple of articles from 1986, but basically he had some trouble with drug abuse, and that affected his behavior during the season. He had gotten it cleaned up in time for the playoffs. Before we start Chapter 2, I want to take a second to talk to you all about a show that my friends Nick and Kyle have been putting on. It's called Next Up NXT. If you know me personally, you know that I'm a big fan of Japanese wrestling, and I also really like NXT. For those of you who don't know what NXT is, that's the WWE's promotional brand. And on their show, they focus exclusively on NXT. For those of you that follow it, this past weekend was actually the NXT TakeOver in Brooklyn. And, you know, hopefully Johnny Gargano is still alive. But if you want to hear about that or any of the history, storylines, and impact on wrestling that NXT has, I can't recommend enough checking out Kyle and Nick's Next Up NXT podcast. It's available on Anchor, iTunes, pretty much wherever you'd want to find a good podcast. So if you're wanting to get into NXT wrestling and don't know where to start, I can't recommend it enough. It's called Next Up NXT. And now back to the show. Chapter 2. Look Out, California. Boston finished the 1986 regular season with 95 wins and 66 losses. They were going to take on the American League West Division champions, the California Angels, who had a record of 92-70. and 70. Game 1 would take place in Fenway Park. Angels left fielder Brian Downing went 2-for-5 with 4 RBIs, and Mike Witt of the Angels pitched a 5-hit complete game, allowing just one run in the 6th inning. After getting 2 outs, the Red Sox starter Roger Clemens walked 2 in the 2nd before Rupert Jones had an RBI single. Wally Joyner of the Angels had an RBI double and Downing's two-run single put the Angels up 4-0. The Angels would add a few more runs and end up winning the game 8-1. They took a 1-0 series lead. The next day was Game 2. Boston was hoping to get back into the series, and luckily for them, their bats were wide awake. Boston would jump out to a 2-0 lead. By the end of the game, they had won 9-2. Boston pitcher Bruce Hurst would throw a complete game as the Red Sox tied the series 1-1 heading out to Los Angeles. 
The Red Sox starter for Game 3 was going to be Dennis Oilcan Boyd, and he was the subject of a pregame rumor broadcasted by a Boston TV station that he'd been in a car accident the night before. Boyd looked great in the early innings. He faced the minimum amount of batters through the first three. In the bottom of the sixth, that was one nothing Boston when Boyd would walk Wally Joyner with one out. Joyner would take second base on a failed fielder's choice attempt, and then would score on a Reggie Jackson single through the infield into right. This upset Boyd. He was really, really angry, and manager John McNamara came out to try to calm him down. Boyd would get the next batter to ground into an inning-ending double play, getting out of trouble. But the next inning, it was just too much for him. He gave up a home run, then a single, and then the next guy hit a two-run home run, which gave the Angels a 4-1 lead. Manager John McNamara had seen enough, and oil can Boyd, he was replaced. Boston would come right back in the top of the eighth, scoring twice against Angels closer Donnie Moore. Still leading 4-3, Anaheim would get an insurance run in the eighth, and that would do it. Boston would lose Game 3, 5-3. The California Angels were up two games to one, with Games 4 and 5 still being played in Anaheim. The Red Sox did have some hope, though. It was announced before the game that Boston's Roger Clemens, you know, the guy who allowed a career-high eight runs in the first game, he was going to start Game 4 on just three days of rest, something he had never done in his Major League career. Manager McNamara's reasoning was simple. You go with your best. If you're in a seven-game series, you go with your best pitcher three times. McNamara wasn't concerned that Clemens had thrown 143 pitches in Game 1. I don't think that's high at all. He's a young kid. Hearing that quote in today's day and age, especially in an era where pitchers are held to pitch counts for an entire season or innings pitched for a season, letting your ace throw 143 pitches when he's in his early 30s sounds insane, but that's just how they played the game back then. The gamble seemed to have paid off for McNamara. In Game 4, Clemens was dominant. Heading into the bottom of the ninth, the Red Sox had a 3-0 lead. Clemens had not allowed a run. He had struck out 9 and only walked 3. The first batter in the top of the ninth for Anaheim was Doug DeCinces, and he hit a home run off Clemens. Clemens would get one more out, but then Dick Schofield and Bob Boone would single. He was two outs away from a complete game, but McNamara couldn't chance anything. Clemens was removed and replaced by relief pitcher Calvin Schiraldi. During the 86 season, Schiraldi was lights out for Boston. In 51 innings pitched, he had 55 strikeouts to just 15 walks. He had a 141 ERA and four wins and two losses. It was now on Chiraldi to close out the game for Boston, to tie the series 2-2. With the score 3-1, California was doing whatever they could to try to put the game out of reach. They replaced Bob Boone with a faster runner. The next batter, Gary Pettis, hit a double which scored the runner. Rupert Jones was then intentionally walked to load the bases. The run made the game 3-2. The next batter was Rupert Jones and he was intentionally walked, which loaded the bases. The idea was, with one out, a ground ball to the second or baseman or shortstop could lead to a double play and end the game. But it didn't really work out that way. Chiraldi would hit California Angels player Brian Downing with a pitch. That scored the tying run in from third. Clemens' dominance was wasted. The game would go to extra innings. California would score in the bottom of the 11th, giving them a 4-3 win. They took the lead in the series, three games to one. Game 5 was absolutely wild. With a trip to the World Series for the very first time on the line for California, all of the pressure was on them. Boston's Rich Gedman would hit a two-run home run in the second to put him up 2-0. But California's Bob Boone would hit a home run in the third to cut the lead to 2-1. 
California would take a 3-2 lead in the sixth inning off of a two-run home run. And what makes it so heart-wrenching is that center fielder for Boston, Dave Henderson, he tried to leap at the wall to catch it, and instead, he ended up deflecting it over the fence. The Angels would add to their lead in the seventh, scoring two more runs. Heading into the top of the ninth, things looked really dire for the Boston Red Sox. They were down 5-2. California starter Mike Witt was still in the game. Because this is the 80s, and we do not use relief pitchers if we can avoid it. In the ninth, Mike Witt would allow a leadoff single to Bill Buckner. The next batter was Jim Rice, and Witt would strike him out. Witt was just two outs away from his second complete game victory of the series. The Angels were just two outs away from getting to their first ever World Series. Boston's back was against the wall. The next batter up for Boston was Don Baylor. He had two strikes on him. Witt delivered, and Baylor hit a two-run home run to pull the Red Sox within one run. It's now 5-4. to four. Again, because this is the 80s and the pitching rules here are strange, they leave Witt in the game. Witt gets out right fielder Dwight Evans. That's two outs now. California is up 5-4. to four. One more out, and they go to the World Series. Next up for Boston is catcher Rich Gedman. He was 3-for-3 three three on the day against Witt, including a double and a home run. So this is the moment where California decides to pull their starter with one out left. They're going to bring in Gary Lucas, who has a history of striking out Rich Gedman. It's a specialty matchup. We'll have to see what happens between Gedman and Lucas. Lucas winds up, and on the very first pitch, he hits Gedman with the ball. Having failed in his one job, Lucas is immediately replaced by Angels closer Donnie Moore. Moore steps into a pressure-packed situation. The tying run is on first. The go-ahead run is at the plate. This is why in the 80s he was getting paid the medium bucks. He was facing Dave Henderson, the man responsible for the home run that had given California the lead. By the seventh pitch of the at-bat, the count is two balls and two strikes. The Angels are one strike away. Moore winds up and throws a fork ball. Dave Henderson hits the crap out of it. He sends a moonshot over the left field fence. Boston has taken the lead 6-5. to five. The Angels fans are stunned. The Angels would tie the game in the bottom of the ninth to forced extra innings. But from then on, the momentum was all with the Red Sox. Boston would score in the top of the 11th, and then Calvin Chiraldi, still pitching, would send the Angels down in order in the bottom of the 11th, completing a comeback and sending the series back to Boston, 3-2. Back in Boston after having stolen Game 5, the Red Sox bats were alive and well. They knocked Angels starter Kirk McCaskill out of the game before they even reached the third inning. Oil Can Boyd throws seven dominant innings. Bob Stanley takes them the rest of the way. The Red Sox beat the Angels 10-4. We're going to have a Game 7. It's going to be in Fenway Park. Game 7, Roger Clemens will be on the mound for Boston. California was wheeling. They never really had a chance. By the 7th inning stretch of the deciding game, the Red Sox are already up 7-0. Clemens gets relieved after 7 innings for Kevin Chiraldi, who strikes out 5 of the 8 batters he faces over the next 2 innings. Boston wins the game 8-1, long before the Golden State Warriors would blow a 3-1 lead in the NBA Finals. The California Angels blew a 3-1 lead in the ALCS. The 1986 World Series will be the Boston Red Sox versus the best team in baseball, the New York Mets. Chapter 3. A Little Roller Along First There has been a lot written about the 1986 World Series probably because Boston and New York are huge baseball markets, huge media markets, and it had a lot of drama in it. It also had a lot of pain for Boston fans. 
The Mets were the best team in baseball, and they had a great pitcher in Doc Gooden, the 1985 Cy Young winner. This wasn't a lovable group of misfits like the Boston Red Sox were. The New York Mets, they were a very good baseball team. They had all the expectations in the world to win this thing. Boston was trying to break a losing streak that straighted back to 1918. They had just done the improbable coming back from 3-1. to one. Nobody thought they should be here, but here they were. The first two games of the series, they were at Shea Stadium in New York. Ron Dahling would be on the mound for the New York Mets. Bruce Hurst would be on the mound for the Red Sox, and it was a pitcher's duel. Hurst would throw eight innings, not allow a single run, and strike out eight. Darling, he'd go seven innings and strike out eight. Ron Darling would only allow three hits. Despite only giving up three hits for the entire game, Ron Darling would walk Jim Rice. He would then throw a wild pitch, and then finally, on an error from the second baseman, Tim Teifel, Jim Rice would score, making it one nothing. That was the only run the Red Sox would need. Between Hurst and Chiraldi, the Mets could only get four hits. Game one was in the books. Despite dominant pitching performances, Boston had won the game 1-0. They were now just three wins away from winning the World Series. Game 2 was the game that pitching fans were really looking forward to. I mean, if Game 1 was a 1-0 shutout with zero earned runs and the only run being scored on an error, what are we going to see when we get 1985 Cy Young winner Doc Gooden versus 1986 Cy Young winner and American League MVP Roger Clemens on the mound. Well, we're going to get a dumpster fire, and neither pitcher is going to make it past the fifth inning. Because baseball is a beautiful sport in the fact that it makes absolutely zero sense sometimes. Gooden was shelled. He gave up eight hits, five earned runs, and two home runs. Boston's bats were alive and well. They'd win game two, nine to three, in front of 55,063 stunned fans at Shea Stadium. The Red Sox were heading back to Boston for the next three games with a 2-0 series lead. Heading back to Boston for Game 3, the Red Sox were on cloud nine. They had just stolen two games on the road from the best team in baseball. They were now two wins away from getting their first World Series since 1918. But it would have to wait. Oil Can Boyd was on the mound, so that means it's either feast or famine. And in the first inning, it was a feast for the New York Mets bats. New York Mets player Lenny Dykstra would lead off the game with a home run of right field. Mets starter Bobby Ojeda would pitch seven innings of one-run baseball while striking out six. The relief pitcher, Roger McDowell, he was perfect in the final two innings of the game. The Mets had won game three by a score of seven to one. For game four, Mets pitcher Ron Darling would be back on the mound trying to even the series. The Mets bats, they did all the work though. Mets player Gary Carter would hit two home runs. Lenny Dykstra, he hit another two-run home run. And Ron Darling would go seven innings, striking out four. The Mets, they tied the series in Boston with a 6-2 victory. The last game of the series at Fenway Park would take place the next day. Heading into Game 5, the Mets were going to put ace Doc Gooden on the mound. Boston would reply with Bruce Hurst. The series was 2-2. This was a must-win game for both teams. Hurst would again frustrate the New York Mets. Pitched a complete game and struck out six as the Boston Red Sox moved within one win of their first World Series championship since 1918. Doc Gooden would last only four innings for the Mets. He had allowed four runs, nine hits, and two walks. He only struck out three. Boston would lead most of the game 4-0. The Mets would tack on runs in the eighth and the ninth, but the rally would not be enough. The Red Sox won 4-2. Game six was up next, back at Shea Stadium. And this is the game that lives in infamy. Roger Clemens would take the mound for the Boston Red Sox. He and Bobby Ojeda would have quite a pitcher's duel. Clemens would go seven innings, striking out eight, only giving up four hits, and only giving up two runs. 
Ojeda, he went six innings and only gave up two runs himself. Heading into the bottom of the eighth, the Red Sox had a 3-2 lead. Clemens would give way to Calvin Schiraldi, who had had a pretty impressive playoff so far, but he didn't have the same dominance that we had seen in other games. The Mets would tie the game 3-3. The teams would go scoreless in the top and bottom of the ninth, heading to extra innings. In the top of the tenth, on the second pitch from Rick Aguilera, Dave Henderson was at it again. He hit a fly ball to deep left field. It went over the fence. Boston would tack a second run off of Rick Aguilera, making the game 5-3, heading into the bottom of the tenth. Chiraldi would stay on the mound for the Red Sox, facing the two, three, and four hitters of the New York Mets. The first one up was Wally Backman. Backman hit a fly ball to left field, where it was snagged. One out. The next hitter was Keith Hernandez. Chiraldi got him to pop out to center fielder Dave Henderson for the second out. The Red Sox were now just one out away. The next hitter was Gary Carter. Carter would get a single on a line drive to short left field. The tying run was now at the plate in pinch hitter Kevin Mitchell. On the second pitch, he hit a single to center. Carter would advance to second. The tying run was now on base. The winning run was at home plate. With two out and two on, up next for the Mets was third baseman Ray Knight. On the day, he had one hit and one walk. He had also struck out and lined out. Giraldi looked at the sign from catcher Rich Gedman on the first pitch he delivered. Strike one. Behind in the count, Knight dug in. Chiraldi delivered his second pitch. It was also a strike. Now, the Red Sox were just one strike away. One out away. They had so many options. If Chiraldi got Knight swinging or looking, he was out. Game over. If he hit a grounder, they could force the runner at third. They could force the runner at second. They could force the runner at first. Anything. A pop-out. A ground-out. It was all up there for Boston. With that in mind, Chiraldi delivered. Knight swings. He makes contact. It's heading to right center field. Carter scores. Mitchell rounds the base the third. It's a single for Ray Knight. The tying run is now on third base. The winning run is at first. With this in mind, John McNamara comes out and replaces Calvin Chiraldi. He's going to bring in Bob Stanley to face the next hitter. New York Mets left fielder Mookie Wilson. He's 0 for 4 today with a strikeout. The first pitch to Wilson from Stanley is fouled off. The next pitch is high and outside. One ball, one strike. Stanley works quick and throws another high pitch. This one's up at eye level. With two balls and one strike, Stanley delivers and throws it right down the middle. Wilson swings big but misses just barely and fouls the ball off. Two balls, two strikes. Just one strike away. Stanley delivers. Wilson fouls it off again. Then he fouls off another. Then another. Wilson is just trying to stay alive at the plate. He's just trying to keep the season alive. It's then when Stanley winds up and throws everything he has. Hard and inside. It almost hits Wilson, who jumps out of the way. The ball gets past the Red Sox catcher, Gedman, and Kevin Mitchell scores from third, tying the game. Ray Knight, now the winning run, has advanced to second on the wild pitch. The count is now three balls and two strikes. Stanley composes himself. He delivers. Wilson fouls it off. Gedman gives chase, but it just reaches the stands behind the dugout. The battle continues for another pitch. This time, Wilson sends the ball foul to the third base side. It's tense. The crowd is building. The next pitch, Wilson swings. As the legendary Vince Scully calls it, a little roller to first baseman Bill Buckner. It starts off really hoppy. He goes to field it, but misses. It goes between Buckner's legs and into shallow right field. Knight is hauling. He scores from second. 
the Red Sox have gone from one strike away, one out away from winning their first World Series since 1918, to losers of Game 6 in the most improbable fashion. It's one of the most famous plays in all of baseball. It's burned into the eyelids of every Red Sox fan old enough to remember. There's no parade, no champagne. In fact, the champagne is actually moved out of the Boston Red Sox locker room. There will be no celebration tonight. Crazy enough, a scoreboard error had actually occurred at Chase Stadium. They had put, Congratulations, Boston Red Sox, 1986 World Champions, on the screen. But none of it happens. Just like that, it's vaporized. Dust. The series is 3-3, with one more game left to play. Game 7, at Shea Stadium. After the dramatics of Game 6, there was still one more game to be played. The Red Sox jumped out to a 3-0 lead in the second inning. The Mets would tie it in the bottom of the sixth. An inning later, Ray Knight would hit a tie-breaking home run. Heading into the top of the eighth, it was 6-3 Mets. Dwight Evans would hit a double that scored Buckner and Rice, bringing the score to 6-5. The Red Sox would get within one run. It was time for the Mets to bring in their closer, Jesse Orozco. He ended the threat in the eighth inning, keeping the Mets ahead 6-5. In the bottom of the eight, New York would get those two runs back, bringing the score to 8-5. In the top of the ninth, Orozco faced the nine, one, and two hitters of the Boston Red Sox. Ed Romero was first up, and he popped out to the first baseman. Wade Boggs grounded out to the second baseman, and Marty Barrett struck out. Just like that, the series was over. The New York Mets had won the 1986 World Series. The Boston Red Sox would have to keep dreaming of 1918. During the 2004 American League Championship Series, the Boston Red Sox would come back from a three-games-to-none deficit against the hated New York Yankees. This was the first time that any team had ever come back from that deficit in baseball history. The Red Sox were on their way to the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals. During that World Series, my friend Russell acted like any sane, normal human would do. He abandoned his job, his internship, and a week of classes to get to his family, including his then 81-year-old grandfather. His brother's restaurant had champagne, a 50-year-old Dom Perignon. It was saved for just this occasion. The Red Sox swept the St. Louis Cardinals in four games. They had won their first World Series in 86 years, 31,459 days from that afternoon in Chicago back in 1918. They had finally put away the misery of 1946, the misery of 1967, the misery of 1975, and of course, the misery of 1986. Russell IV, Russell III, and Russell II would also see the Red Sox win the World Series again in 2007 and 2013. It is yet to be determined if Russell V is about to see the Red Sox win their fourth World Series of the 21st century. They're currently in first place in the American League East, and the current favorites to win the World Series, according to bookers. Have a season you'd like featured on Good Hustle? Visit the show at listentogoodhustle.com or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Mackey or on Instagram at Hello Mackey, and that's spelled M-A-C-K-E-Y. Research credits to this week go for ESPN, Wikipedia, Newsday, The Los Angeles Times, and a special thanks to Russell and his family for sharing their story. We'll see you next week.